Yes, hello folks, welcome to a special episode Beyond the Pitch. Everyone who's always Phil Brown, and I must say I'm delighted to be joined here with the fantastic Samuel Lockhurst from the Manchester Evening News. Shortly after, of course, the draw against Chelsea at the weekend. Uh, first of all, let me welcome Sam to the show. Sam, how you doing, mate? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again, as always. Yes, my pleasure, my pleasure. Let's talk about the game at the weekend, because United dream the leads with Chelsea. A bit of a drab draw, I wasn't much in it. Um, we'll focus on United first before you focus on everybody else. What did you make of that game? As you say, it, it was extremely drab. Uh, I think in the first half, for those of us who are fortunate to be able to go to these games and, and cover them, it was more interesting seeing whose desk was going to get the um, the rain falling onto it first. Uh, because, uh, unfortunately, the, the roof at Old Trafford is, is as leaky as the defence. But, of course, the, the defence put up a decent shift at the weekend. I thought Victor Lindelof had a, probably his best week in... In over a year, he was excellent against PSG. Uh, he was very good against Chelsea. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting one for Lindelof. He seems to reserve his best performances against the best players, if you like. Certainly, his standout performance last season was against Jamie Vardy on the on the final day. So, from United's perspective, the, the game itself wasn't completely devoid of positives and that there were some decent individual performances. They did keep a clean sheet. I was... I was not surprised, but the way Lampard approached the game uh, with the back three and as conservative as Chelsea were, I think if another manager had approached a game that way, they would have got kicked from pillar to post. Uh, I think Lampard gets away with quite a lot from our media over here, not necessarily the Manchester media because we don't cover Chelsea and we don't cover Frank Lampard, but where he's put a lot of face time in with uh, been on England duty and his playing career still feels quite current. I think he's banked a lot of goodwill, so he doesn't get the pelters that other managers might do for the way he approached that game at the weekend. Uh, in the end, I think Chelsea had one attempt on target and that was a, a catch for De Gea from Rhys James. United were culpable for that as well. They, they, I don't think they were really set up to break that Chelsea team down with some of the selections Solskjaer made particularly with Daniel James playing on the left, who just really didn't vindicate his selection. I don't think was ever going to either. But in, in fairness to Solskjaer, his substitutions were proactive. They were attack-minded. Whereas with Lampard, it was it was like-for-like like or, or, frankly, downgrades. And I can understand that Lampard isn't going to want to go um, hell for leather away from home after Chelsea shipped three goals the previous week at Southampton. And I guess in a way, the, the way the game materialised, it wasn't as much of a surprise thinking about it retrospectively as it was at the time in that you had two very porous defence defences coming up against each other. And sooner or later, both of them, both the managers were going to decide that it's, it's time to shut up shop. And unfortunately for you know, the, the, a purist perspective and, and everyone watching, um, that, that time came on, on Saturday and it was just a, it, it really was a dreadful game. Um, and fortunately, we won't have to dwell on it too much longer because there are games in midweek in the Champions League. Oh, yeah, the games in midweek in the Champions League. When we look at um, the old games overall, Sam, it looks like we've got this fatigue amongst all players. We've had this in Unbelievable schedule after COVID. Then we've had international football, which is almost indefensible at the moment. Um, are we looking at players that are just uh, completely burnt out? Because we, if you look across the league, nobody's shown any consistency. No. Um, 
I, I mean, with United, just just looking at Paul Pogba as an example, I mean, Solskjaer was, eventually he actually admitted that he probably made a mistake in starting him as quickly as he did. It was clear, I thought, after the Palace game that, that Pogba was not fully fit. It was clear during the Brighton game, Pogba was not fully fit, but Solskjaer started him and started him. And then eventually it results in uh, him dropping the guy against Newcastle, which was was overdue and, and, and had to happen at that time. So with, with Pogba, I think he arrived on, uh, I'm struggling to think of the date, but it was, it was probably, I think it was nine days before United's first game against Crystal Palace. Now, I don't care how much of an athlete he is, and we've seen before when he's come back after injury or when he made his first or his second United debut, that he, he doesn't take a lot of time to get going. He is a natural athlete in that sense. But if fortunately, I've not suffered from COVID, I've not had it, but I do know people who, who have had it and it is extremely debilitating. Um, you know, we, we know how the perils of it and the strife it's caused across the world. And fortunately for athletes, they can, they can weather it a lot better because of the, phys- the physical conditioning they have. But it is pretty mad when all things considered, you look at when United season finished last season and when this season started, that they were put in that position. But unfortunately, that's that's just, it's, it's the perils of the fixture scheduling. It was always going to happen. There are Euros next summer. There's a rush to get them this season completed in time for that to start in June. I don't. I guess that, however much players prepare for uh, for that, they just can't prepare for it because they've never been in this situation before. It's a unique situation. I think Solskjaer said after the Newcastle game that United season started today, and I can see where he's coming from with that. I mean, it, it's it's completely nonsensical on one hand, but it, it makes some sense on the other in that he he feels as though he's had more time to prepare with them now and. I think the majority of the players just about were were not on international duty, but then again, they did have 14, I think it was 14 players in the end who um, went away with their nations and, and, and played two or three games. And again, that's that's ridiculous. I think the Nations League is a big mm-hmm. issue this, this yeah. year, even though it's actually solved a big problem with international fixtures and that it's all but killed off friendlies by, by playing it at a time where there's no need to play it. There are no crowds. There's nothing really riding on it. It's not going to be played next summer because there are international tournaments next summer. That's not helped matters. But I can also see why, of course, international coaches are desperate to have face time with their players because for Gareth Southgate, for Didier Deschamps, um, for Frank de Boer, who obviously has just taken over as, as the Dutch coach, um, certainly in the case of Deschamps and, and Southgate it would have been the first time they had their players all together for uh, nearly a year I think the last the previous get together was November and of course the March in, internationals never happened so you can't just completely ignore international football but there was definitely a better way of going about it I think in fairness to the English uh, schedule yeah, scrapping FA Cup replays trying to get the League Cup done as soon as possible or certainly the preliminary rounds it, it does make sense, but the, unfortunately, there are going to be times where uh, the backlog of fixtures just just stacks up, and there's not an awful lot you can do about it. And in, over here, our, our winters are infamous for the amount of football that's played, and that's going to be even more full on this year. There are going to be injuries, so 
it is it is madcap. It is exciting, as we've seen with some of the results. But there is a hollowness about it because supporters aren't present to watch these games, and um, if, if supporters aren't present, it, it just doesn't have that same feeling anyway. Then there comes the other question. Let's say Source goes right in that he started Paul Pogba too soon. If Danny Van Der Beek can't get in that midfield when Paul Pogba is being left out for whatever reason, um, we've seen comments from Marco Van Basten this morning. I know Solskjaer said he'll get his games, but it still seems baffling because when he has played, he's looked very good. Why can't Danny Van Der Beek get in his team? I suspect the main reason is that he wasn't Solskjaer's first choice uh, as a signing. He was, he was certainly shortlisted um, as, as a target by United at the start of the year. But I don't think United thought they had a realistic chance of getting him. And there were too many nuances surrounding Van Der Beek in the if he was leaving Ajax, it was going to be for a Champions League team. United only secured Champions League football in late July. And also for a long, long time, probably upwards of a year, it seemed like the likeliest place he was going to go to was Real Madrid. Real Madrid then turned around to Ajax and said, look, we're not signing him because we're not spending a penny in a, in a pandemic window, which I think will have a knock-on effect next year when you've got Pogba and Mbappe with a year left on their contracts and they are two players that Zinedine Zidane definitely wants and Real Madrid might have banked enough money to sign both of them, which would be a hell of a coup uh, for them. So United are left with a free run, run at Van der Beek after Jack Grealish has kept Aston Villa up and has inflated his valuation to 80 million, I think was the figure that Villa were wanting for him. And United were never, ever, ever going to pay that amount of money for him. I think... I was told in February, I think it was, that they tried to set up the framework mm-hmm. of a £65 million deal for Grealish. Of course, that was pre-pandemic. The pandemic changes everything. Suddenly, you're looking at alternatives. And because Ajax are in a... I mean, the Ajax's situation helped United in that last year, they just got to the... They were seconds away from reaching their first European Cup final since 1996, when Louis van Gaal was their coach. And so players like De Litt and De Jong, they had massive resale value and their contracts were, they had a few years left in their contracts. So they were always going to get a hell of a lot of money for them, even though they're a Dutch club and revenues for, for Dutch clubs is a fraction of what some of the lowest teams in, in, in the Premier League uh, generate. So for Van der Beek, the situation he was in, you know, Ajax, I think, went out of the Champions League at the group stage last year. So the Champions League run wasn't there. He, he kind of, not fallen under the radar so much, but he, he didn't have the huge profile that he had the previous year. So his, his resale value was coming down. And of course, there was a pandemic. And United were fortunate to be in the situation that they could sign a brilliant young Dutch player who ticked just about every box of what they needed for, um, I think, as much as £40 million pounds is, is the overall fee if, if the add-ons all add up. So it was an absolute no-brainer, but there have been giveaways as to why he wasn't their first choice. One of them was that they took half a window to sign him, which United didn't even want to comment directly on when it was put to them. Why did you you take five weeks to sign Donny van der Beek? They just wanted to focus on the positives, which is is completely understandable because it was a much-celebrated deal at the time. And the other one was in his last start at Brighton that van der Beek ended up drifting off to the left. And of course players who are adept at playing from the left to also playmaker who who is also a playmaker is Jack Grealish 
Now, United gave us this recruitment spiel last year about a preference for Premier League-proven British players. And Grealish was one player who's... I mean, they didn't have to say his name. They didn't say his name. But Grealish was a name you thought of at the time. James Madison was a name who was very much of interest to them at the time. Madison tailed off at the start of the year. Grealish, of course, had uh, picked up momentum towards the end of the season. And without him, Villa wouldn't have stayed up last season. So Grealish would have been the more desirable pick, even though there's an argument to say that Van der Beek is, is the better all-round player. And it's further complicated, I guess, with Van der Beek in that he can play as a deep-line midfielder. He can play at the apex of midfield. So he's, he's not, in, in some ways he's similar to Grealish, but he's also very dissimilar to Grealish. And it's almost as if there was an element of opportunism in signing him, uh, which... That, that's that's my version of it. It's not United's version of it. But when a player like that is available, it's it's a no-brainer that you take him and you just bank on him coming good when he comes in. And so far, when he's come in, uh, he's not done an awful lot wrong at all. He scored in his debut. Without him, they wouldn't have won at Brighton because it was Van der Beek who... It was, I think Rashford played an overhit pass, but Van der Beek just got there, won the corner. The corner leads to the penalty. At Newcastle, he plays an instrumental role in Fernandez's winner, uh, four minutes from uh, from the 90th minute as well. So in his cameos, he's done more than enough to suggest that he should have started by now. And it is utterly baffling that of the six major midfielders United have got, the most recent signing, the most recent one they bought, um, is the only one who's not started in the Premier League or the Champions League. So... I guess there will be a period of adaptation. We've seen it before with Herrera. He was bombed out for a long, long time under Louis van Gaal. I think it was one league start in four months. But his return to the fold near coincided with United's best form and best football under van Gaal. I know Mkhitaryan only lasted 18 months, but once he did get back in after that disastrous derby he had in September 2016, I think it was, when he was hooked at half-time, he, he had an excellent second half of the season. He was absolutely pivotal in the Europa League but I think Mourinho soon tweaked at maybe at the start of the next season that his assists the stats padding if you like masked what were generally poor performance levels and, and he was a Europa League standard player um, rather than Champions League standard player and so they, they got rid of him after 18 months I don't see that happening with Van der Beek I, I, I've every expectation that he will still be a success at United and the Pogba situation is interesting that you can completely see Pogba leaving next year and United, fair play to them, have signed Fernandez and they've signed Van der Beek, who are two players who potentially offset his departure. Yeah, because that isn't the subtle question. Yet when you look at the can Pogba and Fernandez play in the same team in big games, we still don't know that. We saw it towards the we saw it obviously when there was option of COVID, they played well. But now the question was coming again, especially after what we saw against Spurs. It's not a solid question. Can Pogba Fernandez play in the same midfield in the big games, is it? It, it is a difficult one to establish whether that, whether there is long-term scope for that. I, I think that... See, I, I still think it, it's possible to make it happen and you've got to judge Pogba when he's at his optimum and maybe he's getting back to his optimum now that he's recovered from COVID and he's you know, the after effects of it, the, the, debil- the debilitating element of it that clearly affected him in, at the start of the season has, has possibly gone now. And the Tottenham game in June, I know it was Pogba's first game back for probably six months or whenever it was. 
but they they seem to complement each other well there and that Pogba played deeper his passing is more polished than Fernandez. I think that game he had a near 100% um, success rate with his passing. I think the only one that didn't find a teammate ended up being a corner. So it's still an element of success to it. Fernandez is the risk taker. He's going to lose the ball an awful lot because he's high up the pitch. He's always looking to pick a pass um, in, in a quite, quite a hasty or rushed way. Um, but that's also what makes him brilliant. But then you've got Pogba, who, as we saw in his first season back at United, the amount of times he found Ibrahimovic with these very skulls-like direct balls. Uh, it's it's a different kind of attacking midfielder that you've got there. Uh, I mean, the, the Pogba's role has been a debate for pretty much ever since he came back to United. There have been those adamant he can't play in a two. I think he's shown on a number of occasions that he's more than capable of doing that. But there are those who have this obsession that Pogba should play on the left of a midfield three. I know that Mourinho wasn't always accommodating with that, but certainly, you know, the Derby game when he scored twice and United won uh, 3-2 in, in 2018, that's, that's where he played. But you might dismiss that as just a freakish occurrence because United came out of the blocks for 10 or 15 minutes and blew City away. But I think you've got to look more at Pog, look more at Pogba as to why nobody can quite nail down where he absolutely has to play in this United side, rather than saying it's the manager's fault because he's played under a couple of managers already. Um, he's also undermined both those managers, so he's not exactly helped himself in that sense. And I know there are always things coming out that he doesn't want to play deep, but he played deep and he won the World Cup. And I know World Cups are and major tournaments are closed environments where players are switched on for that month and there are no outside interferences. Certainly in 2016 at the Euros, agents were banned from France's hotel. And of course that was the summer that, that Pogba rejoined United. So I still think there's a way of accommodating him and Fernandez. I mean, at the moment, Fernandez is, un and Fernandez is and has been since he came in untouchable and you would not drop him even if his performance level in the recent months hasn't been maybe what it was at the start and he's been more of a moments player but what moments he brings for United whether it be the, the Bosley shows with a penalty or you know, popping up with a late winner at Newcastle like he did the other week he, he's very much the team's talisman now and that used to be Pogba's role I suppose the, the, the biggest difficulty in terms of keeping accommodating those two is having an expert defensive midfielder. And that might be the biggest problem in that Nemanja Matic is 32. He can't do that role every week because of his age, because of, um, especially in a season like this with the amount of fixtures and the intensity of it. And suddenly you're looking at someone like Scott McTominay again, who I feel should be given that defensive line, that defensive role or should just occupy a defensive role for United midfield now. Solskjaer has tried to coax attacking instincts back out of McTominay because he was an attacking player when he was in the junior teams at United. But in terms of balance, he's got to take on that defensive-minded role because Matic cannot do it week in, week out. And Matic has already been dropped this season. Fred has absolute merit playing as a deep-line midfielder, but he's not a steely player. We saw that against Tottenham in June where... I Frankly, I felt he was mismanaged by Solskjaer and that he was isolated, but Tomney was played further ahead. And when obviously Steven Bergwijn got the ball, Fred didn't have that cynicism to just take mm -hmm. him out. I think if McTominay was in that position, 
he would have just kicked him, taken the booking, no problem. You've killed the attack and it's still nil-nil. But of course, when it comes to next summer, I think if, if Pogba does go, the midfield United have to bring in to replace him has to be a defensive midfielder because already the whole Matic contract looks, I mean, it, it seemed excessive at the time. It seems yeah. even more excessive now. And that's just an area of the team that needs to be addressed to, to manage the balance in midfield. I mean, Sam, on the Pogba thing, Solskjaer can say he brought him back too soon. But Pogba went and played for France. And to me, when I looked at what happened after Spurs, Mason Greenwood got dropped and Pogba got dropped. Pogba also, on his uh, time with France, talked about his dream move to Real Madrid again. It seemed bizarre to me. The window had just closed. Um, you've just lost 6-1. Is this really the time you want to be talking about this? Um, so is Solskjaer making excuses and truthfully dropped him for the performance against Spurs? Because Mason Greenwood was also left out. And I just wonder, was also Mason Greenwood left out because he didn't track back, um, which, which, which saw United get overlapped on fullbacks? Um, or was there just uh, legitimate innocent reasons for them both being left out? Well, I think with Greenwood, obviously, there's been the issue as to his absence in those those two games. And Solskjaer completely contradicted himself last week when he said, I think on the Monday, he said he's he's had a niggle. And then on the Friday, he said, hopefully he recovers, he recovers from illness. And of course, there have been reports, rumours about as to why Greenwood might have actually been taken out of the team. I suspect something has happened, but not something as bad as some are suggesting. Uh, but he's... In terms of his his tardiness, I, I was told that he's almost always the last in for training at Carrington, but that does not necessarily mean he's late. You can be the last and, and not late still. Mm-hmm. And maybe Solskjaer, as he went on the attack last on Friday when it was in defending uh, Greenwood, maybe he's just changing the tone now, having privately rollicked him, and now it's a case of publicly backing him. But Greenwood was certainly targeted by... Tottenham. I think I wrote the story just after deadline day that with with Aurier and Reguillon, they noticed that United's ice, uh, fullbacks were isolated because Rashford and Greenwood don't like defending. Certainly didn't like defending that day. And Tottenham had an awful lot of joy uh, against United. Aurier scored a lot of uh, half their goals must have come from the flanks as well. So. That that clearly came into Solskjaer's thinking. I think Mata was always going to start against Newcastle purely because Cavani was uh, was unavailable as he was he was still in quarantine and Marshall was suspended. So Mata was the logical one to come in. Daniel James was the surprising name who also came in. And then of course you have the suspicions over Greenwood. But I suspect come the next um, uh, you know, come the next couple of games it will be Greenwood back in and Daniel James not starting. Uh, given how he performed at the weekend. But with, with Pogba, I think United have finally shown teeth there in that they're in a situation now um, where they've, they've just extended his contract. Uh, that was, United told me they extended it before he came out with what he said about Real Madrid, um, which I completely believe, but it is still the earliest they've triggered one of these one-year extensions. And they were always going to do it, but the sooner the better, really. It's it's strange the way they go about it. Some some players in the past have been told, have discovered about it when uh, when when they got a letter through the post. Uh, I think Ander Herrera was the example. He received a letter saying, you know, very, very... Um, 
form, in a very formal manner, just saying Manchester United would like to inform you we've extended, we've exercised the one-year option on your contract. You'd, you'd think someone would just tell him in person. It's, it was a very, very strange way of going about it. And, and he wasn't the only one that happened to. And Pogba had to be dropped, I think, for that Newcastle game. A lot of people doubted whether Solskjaer would have, have the bottle to do it because he has indulged Pogba a hell of a lot during his time as manager. Uh, there is history there. I think Solskjaer gave Pogba his reserves debut. And I think United partly identified Solskjaer as a caretaker option to come in because of his working relationship and history with Pogba. They, they have indulged Pogba an awful lot um, throughout his time at the club and backed him. But when he keeps on doing these things of going away on international duty, and he's not the only player who does it. So many players, not even in French camps, all sorts of camps, when they're back in their native homeland, speaking their mother tongue, they're very comfortable talking about all sorts of matters. Whereas when they're on club duty, it's it's a closed shop almost. And certainly Pogba in in recent years, when he, whenever he stopped in the mix zone, it's almost always been to um, to undermine the manager. Um, I think Leicester, the opening opening day in 2018 was one, and of course the the, the Wolves game the following month when he said United need to attack, attack, attack. Um, you know, clear coded messages that went against what Jose Mourinho would have wanted a player um, to say about his uh, his management or what was going on at the time. So. I, th- I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but ultimately Pogba came out of the team because he he played like a drain in those first few games and United needed to freshen it up. McTominay-Fred was a midfield combination that worked really well last season up until McTominay um, got injured on box today, I think it was. And Fred, I thought, was United's best midfielder last season. I mean, if you, if you were to regard, obviously, Fernandes as an attacker, then... Um, you know, there's an argument to be said that it'd be Fernandez, but in terms of the the, the, the recognisable midfielders that were on United's books, Fred was by far and away the best. I thought he had an excellent season. Um, it was a bit perplexing that as soon as Van der Beek signed, people just automatically thought that a guy with three years left in his United contract and had a brilliant season would mm. automatically be sold. That was never going to happen. And I'm, I'm quite pleased for Fred that he's been recalled as quickly as he has. And, and vindicated his selection because, again, in Paris, he was absolutely tremendous. Yeah, he really was. Um, the Bruno Fernandes thing, because um, there was reports written that by certain journalists that Bruno Fernandes has a problem with Solskjaer, and it seemed to be verified by a guy in Portugal as well. Um, since being refuted, of course, heavily by Fernandes himself, but is there something to this? Is there something to the Bruno Fernandes allegedly not uh, liking Solskjaer, thinking he's weak, thinking that uh, he didn't bring the players in that they needed this summer, uh, or is, is is this just an exaggeration? I think some. I I was aware. I, I was kind of like tipped off on deadline day, and I I didn't chase it up purely because it was deadline day and it was so chaotic. But that something had happened at half time during the Tottenham game that involved Fernandes. I, in terms of the things that I was told, nothing was mentioned about him having a pop at Solskjaer. One of them was about, it involved Matic, and Matic was the other player who was who was taken off at half-time. Another one was um, that, that was suggested was that Fernandes had, had a pop at Harry Maguire, again, which is, is unverified. I think the Solskjaer aspect was probably twisted and taken taken too far. 
um, in terms of the general reporting of it. I think there was a story to be done on it um, whilst, whilst checking with sources. But as far as I could gather, there was nothing regarding Fernandez telling Solskjaer, you know, you're a PE teacher or saying something like that, that, that people say about Solskjaer on Twitter or slating his tactics. I think that, you know, I'll try, try to be polite about it, but obviously you know, I think people are aware where some of the stories have been, have come from and the vested interest in right. um, that source, putting that story out there about Solskjaer and making Solskjaer look unflattering as well. But I think Fernandez was, I mean, he was so vehement in, in his takedown of that report that I think, everybody should just take him at face value because he went away after that game um, straight to the national team. I don't imagine he'd have had much contact with Solskjaer um, while he was away with Portugal and he stuck up for him um, in person, whereas other players like Pogba, for instance, decided to flutter their eyelashes at, at Real Madrid. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those where there was definitely something in it that something definitely happened, but, from from my perspective, there wasn't. I didn't have enough enough journal, journalistically. I didn't have enough information to go on to do a story on it at the time. Um, so in the end, I left it. And I think obviously it came out in the one of the Sunday papers later on that week that that it was a Solskjaer uh, related um, incident. And the club were very quick to to contact me and, and other members of the um, of the Manchester pack to say that, that that wasn't the case. And of course the club are going to say that, but they felt it was a serious enough story that was out there yeah. that they were impelled to go out and, and, and knock it down. Let me ask you some about um, <clears throat> a couple of other things. Axel Tunes EB, he played exceptionally well against PSG, then was missing at the weekend. What happened because it seemed a bit unfair to him or was it unfair to ask him to play two games in such short space of time, given that he was out for so long? I could see it from both perspectives. I think that long-term United Central Defensive Partnership have got a bit, has got to be a fit and fire in 2 and ZB with probably Maguire because they've invested £80 million in Maguire. Solskjaer's made him captain. Lindelof had an excellent week last week, but he just, he just screamed squad player to me. And I think he has done for most of his time at United, even though in that 2018-19 season, I'd have said he was the, the best player overall. And I say fit and firing with Tu and Zibi because he's he's not been fit anywhere near enough since he first came into the United team. It's it's nearly five years ago since he actually first made United squad at, at Crystal Palace under Louis Van Gaal, and that bodes well for him in that he's he's a player who has transcended managers. That's you know, Van Gaal, Mourinho, and Solskjaer all have really really liked him and have all um, you know done something that has reflected his his development, reflected his quality. Mourinho took him on all of his pre-season tours. He was on Solskjaer's first pre-season tour as well. So his, the quality there is is undeniable. It's just a case of, of staying fit. And of course, Solskjaer, part of his thinking is it was his first game back against Paris Saint-Germain. His selection was enforced by Maguire being injured. I suspect if Harry Maguire was fit for that game. It would have been a back three of Maguire, Lindelof and Shaw because that did work well last season, particularly against Manchester City when, when United won 2-0 in March. But with Turinzibi, you've got speed and with Maguire and Lindelof, you're lacking speed. And I think any 
defensive axis or defensive trident um, in European football at the moment. You've got pace there. David Alaba at Bayern Munich is not a centre-back by trade, but he's quick. And that's why Hansi Flick is using him in that role there. It's, it's a little bit unorthodox. And I think a team like Bayern can get away with it because the attacking brilliance is just off the chart. But with United, it's... It's a different, it's a different matter altogether, and it's probably why Luke Shaw ended up being a left-sided centre-back because he is actually quick, and I actually think he looks more comfortable there now than uh, than at left back. I mean, Alex Tellers looked very, very promising on his debut, and I mean, I don't know what the reasons were behind his absence at the weekend, whether it was just because he wasn't selected or he picked up something in PSG which forced him off, but you would probably say that he's the more natural left back because he's more attack minded if there's not a game that goes by where Solskjaer is not on Shaw's case telling him to get forward and given Shaw's age I mean he must be 25-26 now that that is a bit of a worry still but going back to Tunzibi as I said I, I think that there's, sooner or later you've got to acknowledge he's a long-term solution for United and Lindelof probably isn't Lindelof is a squad player, he's someone who will will do well to supplement a back three. That was partly why he was signed. Um, it, it's just two and Zeebi's time. I think the stars have aligned for him in that United have had such a dreadful start to the season defensively. Eric Bailly's got injured again. I think Eric Bailly's race has run at United. The contract situation into the last two years of his deal. He started, I think he started 24 Premier League games in his first season and he started 21 in the league since. Yeah. That that alone just makes your mind up in that he's got to be sold next summer unless he has an absolutely barnstorming second half of the season. I think that the situation there is, is pretty easy to handle for United with him. So Tuanzibi is now the third choice centre-back again and he, he is going to get games, but Solskjaer does have a soft spot for Lindelof. He only dropped him for the Tottenham game. That was the first time Lindelof had been dropped and a demotion was well overdue uh, by that point, but it was Lindelof's. Lindelof has this strange record where last season when he was injured or didn't play in Premier League games, United almost always lost. So their record without him under Solskjaer is, is, is not particularly good. And obviously that works in his favour. And I think Solskjaer probably looks at that and thinks, well, I need him back in. But there's no doubt that he's he seems to have benefited from some some kind of Scandinavian solidarity there and I just don't think I, I just don't see Maguire and Lindelof as a long-term partnership I know they've played a lot of football together but United's aspiration has got to be to challenge or win the league again and I just don't see that as a title winning partnership. Last couple of questions Sam I want to ask you about Dan James because his performance at the weekend suggests one of two things either that he needs to be loaned out to get some confidence um, or Maybe he doesn't belong at this level, but it was very poor. I felt sorry for him a bit. A bit. Uh, that has to be a concern for Solskjaer. Yeah, the the strange thing about it was that when Solskjaer was asked about James in, in our embargo section after the game, he said his confidence is high and it, it really just doesn't... It, it looks the exact opposite. Mm. I think the startling thing I noticed at the weekend was that he, he got the ball... We were pretty much direct in line with it in the um in the first half because the, the what what is the press box at Old Trafford it's our section has been relocated to an overflow in because of social distancing and the ball had reached him but he was trying to bring the pace down whereas he should have just got gathered it and 
got on his bike, gone away, but he wasn't. He was bringing the pace down. And I thought there, in, in that moment there, he, he just looked like a championship player. He looked like the pace of the game was too much for him, which is strange because he's so quick. And the first half of last season, I thought he had a, an excellent first four months at United. But at the moment, he's just making all the wrong decisions. He, he completely played into Reese James's hands. He was easy for Cesar Azpilicueta to deal with. Azpilicueta is not renowned for his pace, but James looked slow up against him. Mm-hmm. And his his name on that team sheet on, on Saturday was, was the surprise. I don't think anybody thought that he should have been starting that game. I thought he did okay at Newcastle. There were signs that he was maybe getting back to the level he was between... August and, and December last year but it wasn't anywhere near enough to suggest that he should have been starting against a team like Chelsea or, or a defence like Chelsea's and predictably he, he came off before the hour so he has had a tough time and I, I try and have a lot of sympathy with him because he lost his father just before he signed for United that's that's horrific especially at his age he was 21 at the time and I don't think enough of the trolls on Twitter actually uh, take that into account when they're slagging him off yeah. and you know baracking him, and and that must have an impact on you. Sometimes grief comes at a later time because, as I said, he signed for United quite quickly afterwards. He was on the pre-season tour. He had work to keep him going. He had a new club to yeah. prove himself out, and it probably helped him take his mind off what was going on um, in his personal life. But at some point or another, you have to you have to con- you know confront confront those demons unfortunately and that has to be taken into account with his loss of form but of course he was they took a punt on him effectively he was a championship winger he'd never played in the Premier League he went he had a loan spell at Shrewsbury where he didn't even have a kick about two or three years ago he was the roughest of diamonds but United were doing a decent job of polishing him and I think up until the restart, he was still justifying his selection, even in games where he wasn't performing because he would be um, partnering Marshall in the split striker tactic. United's back three was keeping a clean sheet and they were beating Chelsea away or City at home. And it worked. But of course, when the big guns came back, there wasn't any room for him. And Leeds wanted him again towards the end of the window. And that didn't materialise. And you wonder whether that's that's had some kind of um, effect on uh, the way he's going about um, his, his his playing style and whether that's unsettled him slightly as well. And there was also the mismanagement of, of Solskjaer in the first game against Crystal Palace. He played James on, on the right, which is just exactly the place where he shouldn't play. I know it's daft, a daft thing to say about a right-footed winger, but... He is not a right winger. He's he's so predictable. He's he's uncomfortable there, and I felt sorry for him because the week before in the friendly at Villa, um, he played on the left wing. He actually looked very good, and then Solskjaer put him out of position, and United lost, and he was substituted at half time. So, I think a, a loan. It's easy to say that he needs a loan, but given the situation with United's attack and what, I think Solskjaer's still going about his way of deciding who goes where and where the pieces fall into it at times, even though I think it's a little bit obvious now that Cavani is the backup striker. Igalo is surplus and going back to China in the new year. There's not a right wing, specialist still it's, it's Matur, it's Greenwood. And on the other side, if Rashford's injured, then it's probably Daniel James who starts there. 
So I, th- I still think he has merit as a squad player for United and they've only spent up to £18 million on him. So it's relatively cheap, um, even if they do deem him a write-off midway through the season or at the end of the season. But I can easily see a situation where next summer, if if, if things don't improve between now um, and, and May or June, that it, it could be time to cut their losses. I also can't imagine the fact that United you know, Prioritised Jadon Sancho all summer in his position, particularly helpful either. Um, last question on that, Sam, because they did prioritise Jadon Sancho, but mm. really bizarrely, they were how they went about it. They never made an official bid for him, um, never really got close to making that sign happen. Um, so was what they did in the summer by design, or um, were, did they intend not spending a lot of money? Why did we see the summer that we saw? I'm still trying to work it out myself, I think. Um, I mean, I was I was told, I think, on might have been deadline day or or certainly to the very end, towards the end of the window, that United had abandoned a move for Sancho weeks earlier. They just hadn't communicated it. Not that they would have, because you can imagine how well that would have gone down on Twitter. But it, it was a really, really peculiar way they went about it. Um, I think because of the attention that Sancho generates online, uh, that, that, that was in fact into it because there was a report in early August that they'd agreed terms and they were close to signing him. And United actually, their communication staff, felt compelled to contact the overseas journalist uh, about this story and tell him, look, you're leading fans on a merry dance. This is not true and you know it's not true. And then said journalist had to row back and was more restrained in his reporting of Sancho, um, Sancho to United or Sancho not to United in the end. Obviously, the pandemic had a massive impact on United not going for him because they just weren't prepared to meet Dortmund's asking price. Dortmund were adamant that this deadline was uh, Sanskrit, that as soon as that passed, he, he just was not going. United downplayed that before and after the deadline. And I can understand that because Dortmund have done this before where there's a lot of posturing involved, but they end up selling the player anyway. And that almost always happens. But then, of course, United come along and, and it doesn't happen. And it, it, I suppose if you had to guess what club would come along for a Dortmund player, a big Dortmund player, and not end up signing them, it, it would be United, unfortunately. So in the end, it was one of those that... As I said, I'm still trying to kind of like make head or tail of. Um, it, it was very, very perplexing the way they went about it. They didn't deal with Dortmund directly. They dealt with uh, Stefan Litsteiner's brother, who was um, acting on Dortmund's behalf. Sancho's agent, Amico Abasse, was communicating on Dortmund's behalf, which United found very, very unusual. And I can understand that. But ultimately, sometimes you've got to go about things the old-fashioned way. Just make a bid, see what Dortmund say about that and then go from there. Um, and then in the end, they kind of contradicted themselves over the whole thing because they said an issue or issues with Sancho uh, were agents' fees and, and his wage demands as well. And of course, mm-hmm. when Cavani comes in, obviously it just screams, with all due respect, Cavani, hopefully he won't go that way, but it screams Falcao and it screams huge wages, huge agents' fees, especially as he was on the free. And Cavani's 33 and United gave us this spiel about wanting players aged between 23 and 28. And suddenly you feel 
a little bit fobbed off really and i can understand why supporters feel fobbed off because we're the ones relaying that information they feel as though they've had um they've been informed as to the way united are going about things and they completely contradict it by making a signing that they accepted was opportunistic in Cavani. It was done so late, they couldn't say it wasn't opportunistic. And Sancho is someone who, okay, he's outside that 23-28 bracket, but he's a player that they've wanted since he was at City. They've had their eye on him since um, he was in his last days at City and they were interested, Tottenham were interested. In the end, he went to Dortmund and he made a great decision in going to Dortmund. And there's every chance they'll go back in for him next year as well but there's also a danger that that ship might have sailed because of the amount of the amount of grief uh, they suffered this year trying to go for him this is two summers running where they've they've looked to sign him in 2019 it just was never going to happen never really got off the ground because they, they hadn't qualified for the Champions League so that was always a no-no but it's interesting that to offset Sancho um, not not arriving they've signed two very raw very young teenage wingers who are, are both right wingers as well in, in Diallo and um, and Palistri. Yeah, it'd be quite interesting. Sam, listen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and uh, being so, so generous with your time. Uh, thank you so much, mate, and I wish you all the best. Cheers, Paul. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Bye.